There's little argument these days that electrified transportation will play a significant part in the world's efforts to decarbonize. Looking at a couple of examples, Navigant Research projects that electric cars could make up nearly 20% of all new car sales by 2030, and Bloomberg New Energy Finance projects that figure could be nearly 60% by 2040. But in this big shift from gas-powered cars, buses, and trucks to electric vehicles, it's important to not get too mired in the data and statistics. What ultimately will propel the transition to electric vehicles are consumers. Put simply, drivers need to understand and embrace electric vehicles in order for them to become mainstream. Keeping the consumer in mind will be critical as the auto industry, utilities, policymakers, and regulators work to build vehicles and create the infrastructure needed to make electrified transportation a reality. Understanding electrified transportation and how to put the consumer at the center of this transition will be our topic on this episode of Beyond the Electron the Energy Cloud podcast series. I'm your host, Chris Warren, and I'm pleased to be joined today by two guests who have unique perspectives on this topic. With us today are Derek Jones, a director in Navigant's energy practice. Derek leads Navigant's transportation consulting group, where he works on everything from market assessments to business case analysis, to leading broad stakeholder consortiums and planning regulatory and policy roadmaps. Before joining Navigant, Derek led early efforts at the utility Pacific Gas and Electric Company to understand and plan for the then newly emerging electric vehicle market, both internally and alongside the Southern California utilities. Also with us today is Doug McMahon, head of e-mobility and grid flexibility at the New York Power Authority. Doug and his team at NIPA are in the midst of accelerating the adoption of electric vehicles in New York which is a critical part of achieving the state's ambitious decarbonization goals. Among other initiatives, NIPA is rolling out 800 DC fast chargers between now and 2025 to make it possible for electric vehicle drivers to go from one end of the state to the other. So let's start our conversation by getting some of your observations about consumers and EVs. Derek, we'll start with you, and then I want Doug to jump in. Let's start with perception. I want you to talk about what the biggest myths are around electric vehicles. Excellent. Thank you, Chris, and, and good to be with you and Doug today. So myths uh, obviously are, are are something that have really, you know, permeated this market since the early beginning, you know, back in the first wave of the EV introductions that we saw with uh, the EV1 back with General Motors. You know, the myths have really kind of propagated since that time and, and in this next coming, as it were, uh, of electric vehicles uh, right around the 2008-2009 time period. Myths, be it in the customer space, in the supply chain space, in the policy and, and uh, broader regulatory space, you know, really have taken different shapes and forms. And, uh, and, and our team certainly been engaged in that when we talk with our clients in the utility space with our government clients, um, and certainly within the broader EV ecosystem as well. So I just wanted to share a few with you and uh, and certainly love to hear Doug's thoughts on these as well. But uh, the one that's that's been out there, and particularly over the past few years, is ecosystem actors like utilities uh, have looked to enter into this fray uh, with respect to EV charging infrastructure, is the build it and they will come myth. Um, so that that concept is that just like gas stations, right, if there's one on every corner, 
then they will get used uh, and over time. Challenge with that is that, right, as with fossil fuels um, and other more portable forms of, of energy for combustion through transportation uh, to move a good or a person from A to B, unlike those, uh, electricity and electrons already flow to where vehicles spend most of their idle time, be it homes, be it commercial locations, depots, et cetera. So the builds it and they will come myth really rests on the idea that folks can't charge up or fuel up, as it were, at home um, because they can uh, or at their depot or at their workplace, then the idea of where to put infrastructure really needs to take a careful look uh, and take into account key alignment areas around locational adoption trends that we're seeing with respect to different types of vehicles and use cases. Um, so certainly you've got your light duty, passengers, you know, driveway bound uh, vehicles, and uh, they're probably going to do a fair amount of charging at home. Uh, if they have a workplace, they may do you know, maybe 15%, but really 80, 85% of the charging that we've seen for those light duty passenger vehicles is going to happen at home. So if you're an entity like a utility uh, or a charging network provider that's looking to expand this market and make a play, uh, to capture value in it, you really got to think carefully and plan carefully uh, with a number of different stakeholders where you're going to put that infrastructure to get the best return on that investment, realizing we're still early right in the in the adoption curve here um, for electric vehicles and for the rollout of infrastructure. So where, where I get uh, concerned about the build it and they will come uh, myth is the risk of damaging brands for those that are building it and you know further kind of distancing. Customers, whether they're, um, you know, your your um, parent getting your kids uh, from soccer practice uh, to chorus, uh, or your uh, a delivery and logistics provider getting a good uh, from a distribution center to a doorstep, you really don't want to damage that brand with those customers uh, because they are, you know, in both of those cases, those are very time-driven individual decision makers, uh, and if they're going to move from uh, an an ice or an internal combustion engine life into a BEV or a battery electric vehicle life, um, that transition really has to make easy uh, uh, the, the mental transition as well. So really want to protect that brand uh, and, and steer away from that build it and they will come myth. So happy to pause there. Uh, Doug, if you had any thoughts. Yeah, sure. Um, <clears throat> good afternoon, Chris. Uh, delighted to be here with Derek and yourself. Yeah, I mean, I think there is some uh, truth in in the build it and they will come myth, but I, I think it's really important to understand why th that myth exists, and I, and I think it's it goes back to the consumer again in my mind, and it, it goes back to this notion of of range anxiety, and that EVs don't have the necessary battery range for for customers to live out their daily lives. So you know the average New Yorker I think drives around about forty miles a day. 95% of all trips are less than 30 miles. The average range of a typical EV, when you compare it to that, is well over 200 miles nowadays. That's enough to cover four to five days worth of driving. So obviously, if you're like a road warrior or a rideshare driver or just wanting to take a long trip, range can still be a problem driving around New York, which is the area where NIPA serves, particularly if you don't own a Tesla. Um, and that's what we're looking to address through our DC fast charging program. But the long and short of it is, range anxiety shouldn't be the reason why people don't gravitate towards EVs. And that leads me to, I think, two other key kind of customer myths that are driving 
should, you know, certainly directing a lot of the work we're doing with the Evolve New York program. I, I look forward to talking about that a little bit more in due course. But the first of those myths is that the EV is only for the wealthy, right? And, you know, when you compare monthly fueling, insurance, maintenance, depreciation costs, all of these are considered, plus the federal, state, and utility discounts are, are taken into consideration as well. The total cost of ownership for an EV's lifetime can be thousands of dollars less than the gasoline equivalent. And you know, obviously, one reason for that is that the typical EV drivetrain contains less than 20 moving parts versus 2,000 or so moving parts in a gasoline vehicle drivetrain. So that's one myth that still, in my mind, predicates around the um, around the consumer. It's one the area they're concerned about. And then the the other, which to me is actually probably the biggest myth that I see when we, we talk to people in the utility industry, in the EV industry, and, and with the general consumer, is that EVs are just a passing fad. They won't be a prevalent part of our world until a long time in the future. And, and this, to me, is the most dangerous myth that exists in the industry. Um, uh, you know, Bloomberg keeps accelerating their price parity projections. I think it's, you know, 2022 in Europe and 2024 in the US. Um, but we're also starting to see evidence of changes in policy and in industry that are telling us that this hockey stick adoption curve will be here sooner rather than we think. So in New York, the state has put into law the most ambitious GHG targets in the US, so 40% of which come from transportation. And within that, nearly two-thirds actually come from light-duty vehicles. So we basically need to either remove or replace 3 million combustion engine vehicles from the roads of New York between now and 2030. That's over 25% of all vehicles in the state. And to put it under context, we currently have around about 20,000 full battery vehicles on the roads in New York today. And the second piece is when major vehicle manufacturers like Daimler and Volkswagen say they're phasing out further investment in conventional gasoline engines, moving away from, I guess, a product that served them well over the last 80 years. That, to me, sends a strong signal to the industry. So... These three myths, range anxiety, EVs for the wealthy, and that EVs are a passing fad, to me, these are the ones that are really driving a lot of that consumer behavior at the moment, and probably why we're not seeing as much adoption of the electric vehicle as we would, um, as we would, as we would like to see. That's a great segue, Doug. Let's get you to dive a little bit more into how some of those misconceptions and myths actually animate the kind of work you're doing at NIFA. So I have a two-part question. One. How do you understand what people think about electric transportation? And then the second part is, what are some of the things you're doing? It sounds like education is really important. How does that guide the work you're actually doing on the ground? All right, great question. You know, our efforts are really focused on getting more EVs on the road. Um, and to your point, we really must start with the end consumer in mind. In particular, as I've talked about, the perception of range anxiety is stated as the single most important reason why people choose not to buy EVs. Um, currently, just over 1% of new car sales are EVs. And in New York, that number needs to be well over 20% by 2025 in order to hit our zero emission vehicle target. So the need for the consumer to feel comfortable that there are charging options for all driving eventualities is therefore the number one consideration for our public DC fast charging rollout program. As for the other myths that we've talked and uh, we've talked about, to me, it really is just demonstrating to the industry that much more consumer awareness and engagement is required. Um, you know, and, and, and that's really driving a lot of the research that we are doing with the consumer 
as part of the Evolve program. And obviously spending quality time with the consumer is a, is a great place to start. And we've really been kind of attacking that in, in a handful of ways. So firstly, over the last year, we've, we've taken a, a booth at the New York Auto Show, which has over a million attendees in, in the week that it runs, and, and the State Fair in New York as well, which has about 1.3 million New Yorkers attend. So we're using that as a means to really try and um, educate and, and, and provide outreach to the wider populace. We've also commenced a program of visiting uh, communities across the state and engaging with consumers on their own turf. We found that very valuable. And it's little things like every time I take an Uber or a Lyft, I, I talk to the drivers about the reasons for vehicle choice and what it would take to get them in, a, in an EV. So just really getting out and talking to the consumers as much as possible is extremely valuable. The other thing that we've done actually at NIPER is we've rapidly come to the conclusion that you really need dedicated marketing and consumer engagement resources within the team. And in response to that, we've recently hired a head of customer engagement and marketing into our group, a lady called Rebecca Hughes. And her role is to really ensure that every investment decision we take will drive greater adoption of EVs. You can certainly see how that would change people's mindsets about what an electric vehicle actually is. Doug, I want you to jump in here again, and there are two things I want you to address. One, kind of looping back to what we were talking about around consumer awareness and availability. Do you do work with the dealers? I know I've read in numerous places where a big challenge that people find with EVs is that people don't see them, and it's just not even considered an option. And then following up on that, Derek mentioned the corridor, the charging corridor that you guys have been working on. I think that's an important point to have you flesh out a little bit. So why have you been working on that at all? Uh, sure, yeah. Um, so let's talk about the dealerships first very quickly. Uh, you know, as Derek mentioned, it, it, is, a, it is a challenge. Um, I think there's a, there's, a couple of, there's a couple of different issues going on with the dealerships. In New York, for example, uh, there are, I believe, five um, Tesla dealerships across the state, all of which are in the southern part of, of New York State. So if you live north of Westchester, you're going to have to travel more than 50, 100 miles to go to your, your nearest Tesla dealership. So getting the, the prevalence of, of EVs and, and the models of EVs out at these various dealerships and in locations where people can go and um, you know, see and drive the vehicles, I think is really important. The, the other challenge, which I understand about the dealership model, is that a lot of their, um, their incentives are driven by um, warranty and, and maintenance of vehicles. And as we mentioned before, you know, EVs are um, a lot less costly uh, to maintain due to the, you know, there's fewer parts, less breakdowns uh, and the like. So I, I think there is some, there are still some outstanding questions in the, in, in the dealership industry that need to be addressed around how you can adequately incentivize um, the salespeople to, uh, to ensure that they are uh, talking about EVs in the same way that they would do a, a gasoline vehicle. In, in terms of what we're doing uh, with building out the, the fast charge network corridor across the state. As you mentioned, Chris, we're, we're looking to build out a robust network of 800, 150 kW plus fast chargers uh, stations across the state. And we've got $250 million to invest. And we're looking to operationalize the first 200 of these chargers across 50 sites by the end of 2020, targeting on a lot of the major corridors that traffic, um, that traffic moves along. Our charging network will be available to anyone and will work with any EV. And 
you know, our our real aim there is to get more EVs on the road by addressing the, the issue of range anxiety I've talked about. Um, we believe that this will help address the chicken and egg scenario that currently exists with um, fast charging investments, the build it and, and they will come mentality that Derek mentioned. And that is that you really need a more robust charging network to accelerate EV purchases. But without a higher penetration of EVs on the road, there isn't sufficient site utilization to um, attract the necessary private investment. And I kind of experienced this firsthand, actually, last summer when I was traveling through um, Namibia. So Namibia is like four times the size of New York State and the third least densely populated country in the world. And Namibia has around about 50 gas stations in total, which is crazy given its size. Um, but that wasn't a real issue. The real issue was that at any given time, half of those gas stations had no gas. And as a driver, I had no idea which had gasoline and which did not. So this really change, changes the way you think about driving and the concept of range anxiety, um, even in a gas vehicle. And, you know, wherever I saw an open gas station, I'd, I'd basically fill up irrespective of whether I'd stopped 10 minutes ago or three hours ago. Um, so it wasn't a comfortable couple of days, to be honest. And that's really what it's like driving a, a non-Tesla EV on the roads of, of New York right now. Uh, so that's really what we're trying to address through through building out this, um, this robust network, is to make sure that for those who are unable to charge at home or who are taking long journeys or who drive long distances for, for work, that they they have this backbone of available um, charging stations to uh, to fall back on when required. Right. So I'd like to get you to talk a little bit about, you, you mentioned in your answer, the private sector. How do you approach the role of the private sector in the build out that's really required for this kind of infrastructure and and to make it so that drivers are actually able to go where they need to go? I guess we see ourselves as a is a kind of a necessary market accelerator and de-risker for fast charging. Um, you know, in New York right now, outside of Tesla, growth in charging stations has actually declined over the last two years, I think. Um, there are only about 125 non-Tesla fast charging ports across the state, and we need to get to several thousand conservatively by 2030 to cater for the 3 million EVs that will need to be on our roads. So as I mentioned, you know, we see ourselves as this kind of necessary market accelerator and de-risker for the private sector. Um, so the, the money that we have our disposal, to be clear, we're not granting this money. You know, far from it, in fact. Our, our aim is to transparently demonstrate how the private sector can make money out of these investments longer term. And while NIPA has made the decision to invest, to own and operate these sites, we are actively looking for co-investment from the private sector, whether it be OEMs, charging infrastructure companies, or other looking to get into electrification. And longer term, I believe there's a very strong chance that we'll get out of the public DC fast charging business when, of course, the private sector is ready to step in and, of course, providing the consumer continues to be put first in the build-up. Right. Now, Derek, you can provide us, I think, a, a bigger picture view of what charging infrastructure is looking like outside of New York. Um, what are you seeing? Uh, are you seeing roadmaps sort of that speak like uh, Doug just described? What flavors does infrastructure and the kind of infrastructure investment that is required take in some of the areas that you focus on? Great question, Chris. You know, we are seeing 
um, a number of flavors of global infrastructure um, investment for, for building out uh, charging capabilities uh, worldwide. And, and these flavors were seen really similarly in the States as, as well as in Europe. Um, so I'll take us through uh, the, these three kind of categories and uh, give a, a few quick examples to, to help bring them to life. Uh, so first is going to be public directed. Um, next is going to be more uh, public uh, private partnerships. Uh, and then lastly is going to be more of that pure play private investment. Um, so let's start at the top with the public directed. And, and really with these, in nearly every case, we're seeing that the idea behind them is to stimulate private investment. So things like the Department of Energy's EV project, uh, which is funded by the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act, um, really in, in 18 cities and, and over 12,000 stations are looking to stimulate investment um, back in uh, roughly uh, 2010 um, timeframe on. So uh, that's a key example um, in the States, as well as the West Coast Electric Highway uh, covering British Columbia all the way down through California, um, trying to get installations every 20 to, to 50 miles. So really addressing that range anxiety um issue that, that Doug uh, spoke so well to uh, just a moment ago. Two interesting uh, examples um, that, that I'll, I'll allude back to uh, later uh, in this category uh, were actually uh, court directed. So from that public uh, uh, idea, uh, thinking about how legal fees, legal penalties uh, actually helped turn into uh, what we've seen as uh, um, successful infrastructure investments. So uh, one was uh, flowing out of the uh, Enron scandal. Um, one of the parties there, uh, NRG, uh, a portion of their uh, legal settlement uh, went towards funding uh, electric vehicle charging infrastructure. That was a requirement of uh, the decision in California courts. What then ultimately came of that uh, was the company uh, we now know as EVgo. Uh, so that public direction um, ultimately led to EV charging uh, infrastructure and, and what's now a, a solely private company. Likewise, with Electrify America uh, from the VW settlement, uh, as we've all um, been aware of recently, that entity as well is uh, a legacy of uh, public directed funding uh, from a court decision. Um, so interesting uh, flavors there uh, with, with some gradations in between in that, in that first category. In the second, that public and private partnerships that I mentioned, um, you know, here, uh, Lots of, uh, of great examples. I'll give a quick one uh, from Europe, but really what they're trying to do is address range anxiety, uh, but also take into account uh, other things beyond just uh, return on investment, thinking about equity and disadvantaged communities, but also uh, grid support. Uh, so whether it's grid support today for load management or down the road for things like vehicle to grid integration, uh, V2G, et cetera, um, it's thinking about how to bring those together uh, with a number of different actors. The uh, the example I'd give is is the Central European uh, Ultra Charging Network. So that's covering seven countries, um, roughly 120 stations. And you've got a number of private partners um, with EU financing at the back. So about 20% of that funded uh, by the EU. So really, that's a direct uh, uh, stimuli for bringing about that that type of infrastructure rollout. So that covers the, the public-private partnerships, and you know I'm sure our listeners can uh, bring a number of their other examples to, uh, to the conversation. But lastly, uh, on our pure play uh, private category, that last flavor. So here uh, is where we've seen uh, some a great amount of planning, um, something we are just recently uh, a part of is supporting uh, our clients uh, in Hawaii. 
um, with the companies there, looking at uh, carefully planning um, the type of uh, infrastructure that they're interested in supporting, uh, but also taking into account a lot of those key factors around range anxiety, equity, and grid support uh, at the Hawaiian Electric companies. Uh, so lots happening in the certainly in the utility space, and and, and Doug can speak more. Uh, of course, um, from NIPA's perspective. Um, but we also see in that pure play uh, private um, partnerships by the automakers. So uh, in Europe, uh, Ionity is a partnership with BMW, Mercedes, Ford, uh, and VW Group uh, to deploy about 400 stations in 2020 or by 2020. Um, and, and they're well on their way. Uh, you can look on their website today. Uh, so really it's that idea of being able to unlock the market uh, and the demands by addressing range anxiety and other issues um, through this type of collaboration. In the States, we've seen uh, a bit more of a, um, a pairing off, if you will, uh, of partnerships in this pure play private sector. Um, so certainly the the solo play on Tesla, um, they have their superchargers out there, as, as many know. Um, but GM Bechtel also announced uh, a partnership for a brand new charging infrastructure uh, network rollout. So those would be new stations um, in their case. Um, and, and we understand they're moving forward with that. Um, but interestingly, uh, thinking about Nissan and Ford, uh, they've actually looked back to uh, those couple of those public directed examples I gave uh, a moment ago. And Nissan's partnered with EVgo. So thinking about their infrastructure that's already out there so that their drivers can take advantage of it. Uh, they've gone that direction and tapped that value pool with an existing uh, steel in the ground investment, if you will. Uh, and similarly, Ford partnering with Electrify America uh, on their Ford Pass network. Uh, so not looking to build it all themselves uh, and really looking to leverage uh, what's already out there. And, and in this case, um, from another flavor, uh, that public directed pool, um, looking to, to push, uh, push that investment uh, and the value in it even further. Um, so there's three flavors of, of the infrastructure investment we've seen in the market today, Chris. Uh, appreciate the question. Yeah. And, you know, you look at you look at comparing Europe to the US, and I think uh, Electrify America in the US are at least starting to kind of try and build out that that regional corridor that um, that has emerged in Europe over the last few years. And again, in the work we're doing in New York, we're really trying to complement what they are doing from a from a regional perspective. You know, from a East Coast um, an East Coast perspective, and to, to fill in the gaps. Um, and I think when we're when we're starting to plan out the locations for fast charging sites and uh, and that siting piece, as, as Derek has mentioned, is extremely important. Um, we've got to think about what others are doing and how how we can complement um, each other to make sure that the infrastructure we're building out is as efficient as possible. Either of you can take this one. I'm curious when we talk about private investment, I imagine it takes different forms. But when I just think about it as a driver, I think, well, who would want to invest in this? And I think gas station owners would want to invest in charging stations so that they're equipped to handle whoever might want to come by. Is that the form it's taking? What other forms are you seeing private investment take at this point? I can take that one, Chris, um, if you don't mind, Doug. So it, you're on the right track in terms of those gas stations, right? Location, location, location. They're picked for a very specific reason uh, around traffic flow, uh, things like those metrics I mentioned earlier, um, average daily travel. Um, but 
it actually is up-leveling to the oil and gas majors. And we're seeing significant interest and investment from those players, particularly in Europe, uh, around, you know, as as Doug said, they've owned the last uh, 80 plus years of fuel delivery for transportation. Um, They're not moving slowly to be a major player in owning uh, the next 80 plus years in the fuel distribution. Uh, So uh, they are moving quite quickly um, and thinking in, in big picture ways uh, about this transformation that's happening as these two industries uh, that have really walked in parallel until now, um, the auto industry and its fuel suppliers uh, and the electricity industry uh, and its suppliers uh, have really operated um, serving the same customers, but in very different ways, right? Um, so now that these two have converged, um, what we're starting to see is the opening up of business models through that fuel shift uh, that we see coming um, over the coming decades and how they're going to capture value in that transition uh, is really critically important from a planning perspective that they're thinking big first. Uh, so where we see these types of business models uh, unfolding, these, these value pools, as we've talk, been talking about, been talking about infrastructure, mentioned you know, charging networks, Electrify America, other companies uh, moving in the space, like ChargePoint, Green Lots in the States, but Energy and others in, in Europe. Uh, really thinking about what that charging services uh, business model layers on top of the infrastructure and the value to capture there. Um, we also start to think big picture and, and talking with our clients and understanding from the industry uh, about load orchestration. So uh, what comes with electricity as a fuel uh, isn't just the electrons flowing in to uh, to the battery for use in a road application, um, but how those electrons and how that fuel delivery system can help and support the broader uh, source and, and transmission and distribution network um, to deal with its broader issue of having to maintain right uh, supply and demand instantaneously, uh, which which comes with the the challenge around using electricity, right? Because fossil fuels being combustible can lie dormant um, without any activity uh, for large periods of time and then be called upon uh, at any moment. Um, So having to leverage and be symbiotic with the grid is a critical value pool that we see that load orchestration really layers on top of those charging services. And and lastly, uh, it's really bringing those three layers together with a top layer around mobility services uh, and being able to provide electrified transportation, goods and people from A to B, wraps that all together uh, and starts to move the the paradigm into uh, a full transition from ICE uh, into BEV in our view. Um, so we'd see that uh, about over the 10 years uh, as about a $200 billion market uh, of value that can be captured through these, these four stackable pools, if you will, um, that is really you know, critical to have in view in, in our mind. Uh, when thinking about how you're going to play. So whether it's down to the gas station owners, um, which certainly get impacted because uh, fuel is actually not where they make their money, right? They make their money on concessions and amenities on site. Um, So having help from these bigger players, the oil and gas majors, um, utilities, uh, and other investors in this space uh, is really going to be important to to helping the other adjacent markets uh, to continue, right, with their business models that have been so fuel- system delivery dependent. Uh, so hopefully that gives you a, a general picture uh, of how we see this new delivery structure 
starting to unfold and, and who can stand to, to, uh, to capture some value as it does. Well, great. Uh, maybe Doug can give us some more color around what it looks like in New York. I think the oil and gas majors, are, are, it's only in, in the US, are being a little bit more cautious um, in terms of their involvement in electrification. And, you know, on one hand, I think I read somewhere that I think Shell want to be the, the largest electric utility in the world by 2030. Um, but then when, when you look at the investments that they're making at the moment in uh, in the EV market, um, it's cautious to say the least. I mean, I think Shell have acquired Green Lots, I think Derek mentioned, uh, a charging network company. And BP have also acquired a, a company called Freewire, um, who produce um, fast charging and, and storage solutions for, for, um, for EVs. So I, I think that they're taking a very cautious approach to um, to seeing how the market is going to fold in in the US. Um, we also have another relationship with oil and gas companies through site hosts um, for fast charging in New York State, and um, some of the sites are very good in terms of their potential location. But we are going to have to think a little differently, I think, about where we we, we locate fast charging in the future, and not just assume that the locations where gas stations exist are going to be the right locations. Um, we've got to take into consideration some of the, electri- the electrical constraints, but more importantly. Fast charging is going to be a very different experience for consumers than filling up uh, at the gas pump. And we really need to identify locations where customers can step out of their vehicles for 10, 15 minutes and grab a snack, a bite to eat, freshen up and the like. And certainly um, a lot of the gas stations are probably not as uh, well equipped with those kind of recreational services as, um, as as would perhaps be desirable in the future. So I think there's a little bit of work to be done there. We're working with several gas companies in terms of potentially locating some of their gas stations um, in around New York. So there's definitely interest there from a site host perspective. But in terms of um, private investment, I still think it's early days. Right. Well, you brought up an issue that I hadn't even imagined. And that's all about the experience that drivers will have as they wait for their vehicles to get refueled. Having an environment that's attractive, and again, it gets back to the whole concept of this being something of a mindset change and a cultural change that's required. And it's it's not a huge one. I mean, we're talking about 10 minutes, 15 minutes. But I wonder, to dig into that for a minute, are there other things along that line that need to be considered or addressed when it comes to this sort of mindset shift that's required? Doug, it's it's a really interesting point. Are there others that come to mind? I think we're going to um, come up against a bit of a challenge where my sense is that there's going to be um, pressure, uh, particularly from consumers, to have a very similar experience charging their EV uh, at, a, at a public fast charging site than they would do if they were filling up um, for gasoline. And I th- my sense is that the OEMs and will work hard to try and be able to deliver that. But we have to weigh that up, I think, against the the potential implications to the electricity grid, uh, and really is an not just a utility industry, but with, you know partnership with the OEMs, with the the network providers, with uh, and with other key stakeholders, kind of start to set the right expectations regarding you know charging speed versus the potential cost of the consumer, and if you. You know, there's a, a new Porsche that's come out called the Taken, and and that utilizes an 800 volt architecture, 
Um, and, and during its official launch in the US, Porsche charged at the Taken at a Electrify America site, I think in Pennsylvania somewhere. And they were able to do that at over 250 kW, which is roughly about twice the, the typical speed of fast charging at the moment. The vehicle charged, I think, in just over 20 minutes, which is great for the consumer. But that does come at a cost, unfortunately. And the monthly utility bill for that station, because of the increased peak charging load during that specific event, was well over $1,000 higher than it would have been otherwise. Um, you know, So now imagine hundreds of those types of vehicles charging in a city like New York at lunchtime or at 5 p.m., where we're currently seeing peak DC fast charging. At, at sites. So you know, imagine the additional cost to the grid that needs to be passed through to the consumer. So somehow we've got to get to a kind of a right balance between how we manage cost to the consumer for fast charging versus the, the experience that they're going to have whilst they're charging. And, and we really feel this is part of the reason why we're being very specific around the sites that we're, we're locating our fast chargers at, that we're expecting our customers to get out and and buy some food um, to, to take a lavatory break, to, to stretch the legs for a few minutes, because we think it's potentially unrealistic that, that they'll be able to have a similar experience charging an EV than they would do filling up their gasoline vehicle. Well, that really underlines the importance of collaboration between different groups, different stakeholders who haven't traditionally had a reason to collaborate. I'm wondering what you're both seeing in terms of the effectiveness of collaboration between utilities between the OEMs, the automakers, dealers, all the folks, regulators who are involved in driving this electrified future. Are you seeing uh, meaningful and effective collaboration? And the second part of that would be, what would you like to see improved? So uh, from, from the infrastructure side, we see several types of collaboration emerging in our DC fast charging business, um, each really focused on optimizing consumer engagement. So from the OEMs, I believe, can really help the EV industry educate consumers, not just on the vehicles, but on how to integrate it into the consumer's daily regime. I mean, that's one big gap we see at the moment. You go to a dealership, they'll talk to you about the car, but they can't really articulate what that charging experience and what that driving experience is going to, um, is going to look like for the consumer. So we need to find a way to some extent to bring the charging infrastructure industry, the OEMs, and the utility together to, to kind of present this end-to-end um, uh, picture of what a driving experience could look like. Many of the site hosts that we're working with uh, are also known trusted brands with the consumers, and, and this provides a traditional B2B business like Niper with a limited reputation in the, in, in the end consumer market really provides us with a lot of co-marketing and brand awareness opportunities, whilst also ensuring that the charging sites uh, provide the consumers with the best possible experience. And then I also feel that collaboration with other infrastructure network providers will also be important, uh, particularly as we look to address interoperability, situational awareness, clarity on pricing, a consistent experience, including payment for the consumer, uh, and asset performance. And I'd like to just touch on charging, fast charging asset performance um, for a moment. I mean, it's it's clear to me that the network providers and hardware providers are still coming to terms with a level of charging infrastructure availability and troubleshooting that consumers would expect. So at the moment, it's roughly 
you know, fast chargers are available roughly 90% of the time and there's a kind of a 48-hour response time to issues. And that kind of asset availability is is really not acceptable. Um, and, you know, there are companies out there like Electrify America and the Canadian utilities, BC Hydro and Hydro-Quebec, that are working with the industry to improve the quality of asset and service management. Um, and quite frankly, with the tools and the, the technologies and the apps we have available today, there really should be no excuse for arriving at a fast charging site not being able to charge. So that's one other area where I think there's going to need to be a lot of kind of collaboration across the across the industry to drive up the availability and performance of the fast charging infrastructure that's being built out. Great. Uh, Derek, are you seeing anything you want to add? Yeah, sure. I, Doug did a great job of, of covering kind of areas to improve. Uh, and I like, Doug, how you framed it, that end-to-end picture of the driving experience. Um, you know, how do those pieces all come together? I think the hardest, one of the hardest things back to that intersection of these two industries that have been operating, uh, you know, in parallel, uh, think speaking of the OEMs, the automakers and the utilities, um, one thinks globally, right? And and the other is really no choice, but, but to think locally. Uh, it's all about customers and the particular makeup of the customer footprint what's the balance of residential versus commercial versus industrial and agriculture customers, right? Um, and making sure to meet their needs on a day-to-day basis to keep the lights on, you know, the five nines of reliability and, and all those important things about um, serving customers from a utility perspective. Uh, the collaboration of, of mindsets, I think, is still an evolving question. We've, uh, we've hosted a number of, of, of meetings uh, between uh, industry uh, OEM executives and utility executives uh, over the years to think through where are those common ground points to understand how to move the conversation forward. Um, because as hard as I think it is for the two industries uh, to get used to uh, this new relationship, um, it's very much a speed dating exercise uh, because uh, the environments that both operate in from a business and a regulatory perspective um, are different. And uh, uh, finding those common ground points is can be tricky. One thing I think that uh, having worked in in both spaces in in my career thus far, um, one point of collaboration is the appreciation for long term planning and design. Uh, so planning in a distribution network, for example, uh, typically a five year process, just like planning uh, for uh, vehicle assembly design, typically five to seven year process. So a common thread that really I think could be pulled a little uh, more firmly and explored on both sides uh, is this design concept uh, and appreciation in both industries for the need for that, right? The vehicles that we're seeing today uh, were conceived of uh, five to seven years ago um, that are arriving at lots and the customers are getting excited about. Um, So there's even more to come, Um, but both industries understand the challenge with assembling and operating such complex systems um, that are so critical to uh, really, right, our, our civilizations. Um, in getting about our daily business and going about our, our personal lives. And we're starting to see through corporate needs um, and things like fleets and fleet electrification uh, and eye towards decarbonization as a goal uh, and how they're going to play that out both uh, with their own vehicle sets, uh, but also with their supply chain um, and their uh, distribution networks um, for goods transport. Uh, so 
as fast moving as this is, and as, as kind of strong as the need is for collaboration as it, uh, as it relates to passenger vehicles, um, we're seeing a potentially even faster move uh, on the fleet side uh, with vehicles coming uh, behind the fence, as it were, uh, in, into private depots uh, in, at a much faster pace. Um, so thinking about now just beyond you know, how planning happens within a jurisdiction at a subnational level, how is thinking going to include that more global picture uh, as it relates to this global trend around decarbonization that's, that's certainly not just limited to Europe, but, uh, but also in, in Asia and in large part uh, you know, being dominated by the Chinese conversation? Um, so really exciting time for folks that are uh, in my business and, and part of these conversations um, and really trying to, to keep stimulated uh, progress uh, and ideas flowing, uh, which is a perfect example of, of this podcast and, and being here with you all today. Well, I think collaboration is important enough to stick on for a second more. Doug, let's take advantage of your experience. Are there specific examples that you've observed that really exemplify the kind of collaboration uh, that you've seen done well, done done poorly, done indifferently? What are you actually seeing? Uh, yeah, so um, building on uh, the great point that Derek raised about collaboration in terms of planning and, and integration of, of EVs into the distribution grid. Um, one thing that we're doing under the Evolve program is actually creating several uh, model EV communities uh, across the state. And the aim here is to firstly improve community perception about EVs through education and engagement efforts, um, hopefully leading to more widespread adoption of electric vehicles and electrification of broader transportation in the village. We're also looking to build out a critical mass of electric vehicles within that community in a concentrated location in order to learn how to optimally integrate alternative forms of transportation into both electric grid and, and daily community life. Um, and we really want to do that by establishing partnerships and investments with the private sector to support innovation and uh, the affordable and seamless adoption of, e of, of EVs. Uh, and we're, we're going to be working with uh, um, the town of Fairport, which is a, a town in, in the north part of the state, and actually start implementing um, projects there in, in early 2020. So, Chris, you, that's one example, I think, of a, of a, of a collaborative um, program, which I think uh, we'll be able to talk a bit more about in due course in terms of its success. The, the other one I want to just briefly touch on, and this one's actually in Canada, um, is is through a company called Plug and Drive. And they're a Canadian nonprofit organization that promotes electric cars for for their environmental and economic benefits. And it's a collaboration between utilities, OEMs, and infrastructure providers to increase awareness and education of EVs through the creation and running of what they're calling, I think, an EV discovery center. And the center is an objective location to test drive EVs, to learn more about EV charging and the wider operational uh, implications of owning an EV to get the consumer comfortable uh, with the idea of owning an EV. Um, and in 2018, they had over 7,000 test drives and 15,000 visitors to Discovery Center, over 80% of which I think indicated, and this is a kind of a soft metric, but they indicated that having visited the center, they're more likely to buy an EV as their next vehicle. So again, this is a prime example to me of where the, the 
the three different components of the of the EV industry, the OEMs, the infrastructure providers, and the utilities can kind of come together to really drive um, education and awareness of of EVs to the uh, to the general populace. That's great. Let's stick on collaboration for one more second. I'd like to get Derek to weigh in. You mentioned earlier that you're working in areas that may be outside of people's perception as hotbeds of electric vehicle interest. I could be wrong in talking about Tennessee as an example of that. What do you see in a place like that when it comes to collaboration? Is it different than what you would see in New York or California? Definitely different, Chris. That adoption can be smaller, right? At least the trends that we've forecasted and help stakeholders understand there. Uh, about what's coming from an EV adoption perspective, uh, but there is a strong impetus to plan uh, and to be ready amongst utilities, uh, OEMs, charging network providers, uh, but even the universities as well. Um, uh, University of Tennessee uh, and other institutions, uh, as well as industry actors uh, that are on the forefront of, of creating some of these components and even um, uh, smaller autonomous vehicles as well. Uh, so it's a great example of where there is impetus and initiative in the ecosystem. Um, there may not be the vehicles yet, uh, but that doesn't mean that folks aren't charting a North Star uh, and, and setting an ambitious uh, vision, mission, and goals uh, to pursue you know, what they see as, uh, as we kind of mentioned earlier from a global perspective, uh, the coming trend of, of transportation electrification. Mentioning that it harkens back, it's really a key example of where if adoption isn't as organically driven by early adopters. Um, from a demand perspective, we are seeing strong collaboration from a supply perspective among that, that ecosystem, that, that consortium of, of folks that I just mentioned. And so uh, in Tennessee, these folks got together um, and developed uh, the, the entity known as uh, Drive Electric Tennessee now. Uh, they put out a roadmap uh, and they're taking steps towards advancing uh, the market and, and figuring out the who does what, right? The blocking and tackling of if we've got this vision, mission, goals statement, um, we've charted out different initiatives and projects, activities, et cetera, um, then who does what? Because everyone can't move forward on everything at once. Um, and folks have different capabilities, resources, uh, and, and sweat equity that they want to put forward uh, to moving these different parts together in, in lockstep. Um, so that's been a great example of that grassroots collaboration uh, that uh, I think. Uh, fits into this broader picture uh, to, that I think all feeds Doug's you know, great point earlier of how do you give folks that end-to-end -end vision uh, of what life looks like on the demand side? Really from the supply side, having that end-to-end -end collaboration amongst a consortium uh, is, is, is a critical input to making it real uh, and making it easy for customers uh, on the demand side. Um, so I totally agree with you. Collaboration is a really important point to stick on and uh, I'm glad we covered that a little bit of it there. Well, we can obviously talk on and on. There's so many moving parts and interesting topics to cover, but I want to wrap up with a final question for both of you. And I want you each to take this. If you had a wish list for making this shift to electric vehicles happen faster than it's happening, as fast as possible, what would be at the top of that list? What do you think is the most important thing that needs to happen to push this transition quicker? Doug, you want to start us off and then Derek? Okay, uh, I'd like to go back to um, the first principles that Chris laid out at the top of the podcast, uh, decarbonisation. Um, and electric vehicles are simply one of the many technological means to decarbonise our economy. 
Um, and I, I use this example all the time, but one of my um, favorite authors, Douglas Adams, was quoted as saying, we're stuck with technology when what we really want is stuff that just works. And if you take a moment to think about it, this is not just a wonderfully playful statement, but very relevant to today's EV industry. My one wish would therefore be for the industry to to move beyond prophesizing the the cool factor, the excitement, the complexity, and the social status associated with the electric vehicle, and instead focus on how to accelerate the normalization of the electric vehicle in the minds of the consumer. You know, if we can get EVs to the point where they simply blend into our daily lives and make the driving experience both effortless and affordable, that should provide the right foundation from which to ensure accelerated adoption beyond the the small percentage of eco-warriors, the the wealthy and the early tech adopters that are driving them on the East Coast today. Excellent. Derek, what, what would be on the top of your list? So thanks, Chris. And when I think about my wish list, uh, it, it really comes down to four A's uh, in this order. And it's awareness, availability, affordability, and accommodation. And you know what I mean by that on the awareness side, I think to, uh, to Doug's earlier point, awareness is critical through initiatives like you know EVs are normal now, right? A commercial I, I often hear uh, through um, from Electrify America. Um, but uh, those corridors are critical. Uh, those are branded, make it real examples uh, of well-placed infrastructure that show truly that EVs are normal now. Um, so those are absolutely critical. I think as each local jurisdiction thinks about how they're going to do their big branded corridor, um, do it wisely, do it with stakeholder input. Uh, and and I often tell uh, the folks that I'm working with, you know, in five to 10 years, folks are going to look back at 2019 and 2020 and say, we made a difference in how the market developed based on how well we thought about and planned um, at the turn of that decade. Um, so that awareness is absolutely critical and planning for it is, is important. Um, that availability piece, lots can be said there, um, but I'm really encouraged by thinking thinking like an early adopter when it comes to availability. Um, I think Tesla has a really good model and there's other folks uh, like EZ, EV out there that aren't going with the dealer lot approach to getting vehicles to customers. They're realizing they're selling to early adopters. Early adopters uh, today do their shopping online. That direct a customer through online uh, ordering with a showroom to experience a vehicle, uh, but not necessarily buy it, uh, is really a fast path forward uh, to availability. It gets around the lot issues uh, that we were talking about before. Um, so those two are really top of my list. Affordability, we're closing in on road parity. Um, that's happening. The hockey stick effect, we've, we've covered that well. Um, and on the accommodation side, uh, when I think accommodation, I think utilities, making it easy. Um, as we've talked about, utilities are expert at designing their systems uh, to be safe, affordable, reliable. Um, and they have right people involved ready to help customers when those customers are ready to bring their vehicles into the grid. Um, it's just a matter of maturation. Those first three A's happening, um, the utilities are ready to make that uh, make that connection and bring those loads onto the grid. That's all the time we have today. Thanks again for a great conversation, Doug and Derek. Now, one thing that really stands out to me from this conversation is just how central the experience of drivers is to the future success of electrified transportation. And it takes a lot of different forms. 
It can be about eliminating range anxiety. It can be emphasizing the smart economics of EVs, or it can simply be about making drivers aware that electric vehicles are available today, and they're not something out of some distant Jetsons-like future. We talk about how utilities are becoming more and more customer-centric a lot these days, and they have to be. But I think if we've learned anything at all here today, it's that utilities and their partners in this whole electrified transportation space really need to view all their decisions through the lens of the driver. It's really the only way forward. Well, that's it for this episode. Until next time, this is the Energy Cloud Podcast Series. Goodbye. Thank you.